If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. It should be page 894. Uh, if you're using the red pew Bibles in front of you. Been working our way through the Gospel of John, hoping uh, our, our prayer really is, is John's intent for this Gospel, is that we would see Jesus and that not only that we would see Jesus, but we would come to believe that He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, uh, and that we would have life in His name. Uh, today's sermon is going to be a little bit different because, uh, as you may notice, if you're at John chapter 8, um, your Bible may have some brackets around the passage we're going to read today. Uh, it may have a footnote. Hopefully it has a footnote. It says something to the effect of the earliest manuscripts don't include this passage. And so, uh, really the first part of what we're going to do is it's going to sound more like a Sunday school lesson, but hopefully it's informative to you about why those brackets are there. But uh, before we do that, before we dive in, let's read it and pray together. Really starting at John seven fifty three, If you'll remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's been teaching in the temple, uh, and he has been offending the leaders of Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees. They want to put him to death. Um, 753, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, so that they would have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin... Among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a well-known, often quoted and yet peculiar text in the Bible, we pray for your enlightening, illuminating blessing. Lord, would you open your word to us that we may understand it more deeply, that we would, that we would understand the truths that are being taught in this passage, that we would understand Jesus, and that we would see the grace of Jesus on full display, not just here, but throughout your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
so anytime uh, you read something like the earliest manuscripts do not include blank, um, maybe that inspires just a wee bit of panic. Like, oh no, this is my favorite story in the Bible. Is this not supposed to be in the Bible? What exactly am I supposed to do with this? We've talked about this before. Uh, we've dealt with it primarily in, in Sunday school before, but I think it's, it's important because this story is so well known. Uh, it's well known and it's often misused um, by certain people. And so it's important that we talk about this. It's important that we preach a sermon on it. Um, what does it mean, right? What does it mean when it says the earliest manuscripts? And so let's talk for a brief moment. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about how your Bible, how our Bible, this English Bible in your hands, uh, how it comes together. Uh, we at Grace Fellowship believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the very words of God inspired by Him. Uh, and what we mean when we say that, of course, when we say that, what that means is that it tells us what to believe and it tells us how to live out that belief, right? We say that it's our infallible, uh, that means perfect, it can't fail, it's our infallible rule for faith and practice. So we really do believe that the Bible teaches us what to believe and how to live that belief out. Um, but when we say that, and this is true of, of every evangelical confession of faith, when we say that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, what we're actually referring to are the original, the, the theology word is autographs, the original writing. So the original Greek and Hebrew is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. What we have is a copy of that. So I'm going to ruffle some feathers when I say this. Jesus did not speak in the king's English. The Ten Commandments did not come down to us in the king's English, in southern English or any other English for that matter. Right? They came, the, the Bible is a composition of Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament. And what we have are translations and copies of the originals. And so it's the originals that we would say are infallible. Now, this copy, this we would still say, bears authority as far as it mirrors the original, which is why studies in Greek and Hebrew are so incredibly important. But let's talk for a second about how your New Testament, how our New Testament comes together. What you have, right, the, the New Testament was not delivered, or the Old Testament for that matter, but the New Testament was not delivered as this complete work. What happened was, for instance, as John wrote his gospel, he wrote it for the church context that he was in. And then it was copied down by hand and sent to other churches. And so it was circulated throughout the church global uh, in the first centuries. And that's how, the, that's how the scriptures were communicated all the way up until the printing press. Now, if you're a, a savvy thinker, you hear, whoa, 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 whoa. Tell me that they just copied the Bible by hand over and over again? I mean, that leaves a lot of room for human error, doesn't it? 
Isn't that kind of like a, a big ancient game of telephone? You remember playing the game telephone as a kid where so-and-so whispers in so-and-so's ear, who whispers in so-and-so's ear, who whispers in so-and-so's ear, until the message that the last person had is very different than the first person. Is that what we have in the communication of the Scriptures? And the answer to that question is no. Because one of the things that we need to realize is that in, that in ancient days, that's how information was communicated. And very often your life depended on your ability to remember and communicate accurately. And so in the days before copy machines and spell check, uh, or now I don't even have to really type the words on my phone, I just keep hitting the suggested word, right? Uh, In the days before our technology made us sloppy, the the people communicated truth by writing it accurately. Now, that doesn't remove all human error, but we need to understand that uh, for them, this was a life-and-death issue, that these words were the very words of life to them, and so they were interested in communicating them truthfully and accurately. Uh, that was a way of life in the, old, in the ancient world. Um, but also this, and this is where you know, the, the question that you need to ask is, okay, So that's how the New Testament comes together. All of these different works, John, Matthew, Mark, Galatians, Romans, uh, Philippians, all of these works were written. uh, In some cases they were spoken, then written, and then they were circulated around all the churches. And that's how the New Testament came together, right? Uh, So then the next question is, well, then how in the world do I know if I can trust my New Testament? How do I know that this document in front of me is trustworthy? And there are usually three things that I point to when somebody asks, can I trust my New Testament? There's a whole lot more to this, uh, and I would be happy to provide you with lots of source information. But there are usually three things that I point to. The first is that the New Testament manuscripts are the earliest. And what that means is that the people who wrote them were either eyewitnesses or they lived within a generation of those eyewitnesses. And the first copies that we have fall within 25 years of that. Just to give you some perspective, for ancient literature, the next best you get, the next best you get is Homer's Iliad, which was written sometime around 900 B.C. And the first copies that we have of it are from around 500 B.C. or 400 B.C. So... That's a gap of 500 years, and nobody's calling Homer into question, okay? The Bible, the original manuscripts, come to us from within a century of the, of the actual events themselves. So somebody is, is writing within 40 years of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, okay? So New Testament manuscripts are earlier, um, but more importantly, or maybe just as important, New Testament manuscripts are numerous, Um, we have over, right, and so what we have when we talk about manuscripts that make up the New Testament, whether it's many pages or scraps of of paper that have been, or papyrus or whatever that have been unearthed and put together, we have around 5,800 manuscript copies of the New Testament. Um, Again, the closest thing is Homer at 1,700. All right, so... We, and if you add to, and that's just Greek. If you add to that all of the other ancient languages, Coptic, Syri- Syriac, 
uh, we have upwards of 20,000. So that's our manuscript base, 20,000 pieces of manuscript that help make up our New Testament. And why that matters, right, if I'm, if I'm only given one copy of John, then I have to assume that, that my one copy is the right copy because I don't know. But if I have 20 copies of John, now I can see where all the changes are made, right? Now I can see where the differences are and what is the same and what is not. And those little differences are called variants. And most of the variants are small things like the change of a letter uh, or a word in a slightly different place. And so... New Testament manuscripts are earlier, they are more numerous, and because of, because of how numerous they are, they are more accurate. The Bible you hold in your hands is accurate to 99.5% of the originals. That means we are certain about 99.5% of what we have in front of us. And that 0.5% are those little variations we're talking about, right? And they don't affect any major doctrine. So for all of the variants that we have in the, in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, none of them affect um, any point of doctrine. What's remarkable, what's remarkable about that um, is that is that, that is how God has preserved his word over, over the centuries. Um, that, that, we, that we have this... We have this amazing base from which to draw and say, see, my Bible is trustworthy. So that if somebody were to come along and say, ah, but see, there were variants, there were mistakes in there. That's right. I got 20,000 copies uh, to, discern, to, deter, to discern which mistakes were probably not in the originals. Okay? And so um, if, that, if that was all just like, you know, uh, over your head, we can talk more about it later. But... Um, we have to say that for a passage like this because it appears that this passage is not part of the original gospel of John. Uh, it doesn't appear in the early manuscripts of John. It doesn't appear, I think, until the 5th fifth, uh, fifth century. Um, and when it does appear, it appears here. It appears in other places. And sometimes it even appears in Luke. And so we're not really sure where the story belongs, or if it belongs at all. Um, and even the, the writing style, it's, you can't really tell in English, and I'm not even good enough to be able to tell when I look at the Greek, but the writing style is not John's style, so they say. That's what scholars say. So most scholars would agree that this was not part, originally part of John's gospel. So what do we do with that? Can we, can we preach a sermon on it? Uh, can we use it? And, and most of the scholars uh, who would say this is not a part of John's gospel would still say that it has the ring of authenticity and that it does not con contradict any other part of Scripture. And so uh, we don't know for sure whether it happened or not. We surely would like to believe that it did. But the picture that it gives us of Jesus and the other people in the story is completely, completely corroborates everything else we see in the New Testament. So can we preach on it? Yes. Can we read from it and get uh, and see where, where, wherever it corroborates other parts of Scripture, 
we can glean from it. And so that's what we're going to aim to do this morning. Um, with full disclosure that we're not 100% sure uh, that it was a part of this gospel or even maybe belongs in the Bible, but we're going to point out some things that we know the Bible already teaches and see how they're reflected in this story. So uh, the first thing we want to look at is the hypocrisy of the, of the accusers, right? Um, <clears throat> Jesus has already been fighting with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they've already tried to trap him with the law. They've already tried to say, uh, he's, in fact, he's already gotten on to them and said, you guys don't understand the law. If you knew the law, you would know me. So you clearly don't know God. And so it's almost as if this story comes as a, as a proof of that. Uh, Jesus comes back early in the morning. He's teaching in the temple. He's sitting down. There are people gathered around him. And then all of a sudden, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, scribes. These scribes would have been experts in Old Testament law, right? So they, they knew um, these were men, not just copyists, but they were actually law teachers. They were law experts. And so uh, they, this group breaks into this group that Jesus is teaching, and, they are, and they're dragging a woman with them. And they say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And the law says, Moses says, we have to stone her. What do you say? Now, do these men have any interest in justice or in the law? Or even do they, do they even have interest in God's glory? And I would say the answer is no. These men are not interested in keeping or upholding the law. What they want to do is they want to trap Jesus. How do we know that? Well, it, it tells us as much in verse 6. They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. What they want to do is they want to they pit Jesus against the law. So if Moses says this and Jesus says this, then finally we can discredit Jesus and send him packing. He can stop causing us trouble. He can stop challenging us and he'll leave us alone. And actually, what we may get is an opportunity to, to kill him, right? It's already been said. That's what they want to do. They were seeking to kill him. And so that's, that's the motive that they're coming with. They have no interest. They, they could care less what happens to this woman. What they want to do is discredit and possibly kill Jesus. And so they're trying to trap him. Um, but here, here's how we also know that they're... Their motives are less than pure. In Leviticus 20.10, here's the law they want to cite. Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Who do they have? Just one. What does the law call for? Both. And she was caught in the act. And we know it takes two to tango. So where's two? If they caught her in the act. Again, these men have no interest in justice. These men have no interest in upholding the law or they would have brought both. But their aim is not, their aim is not to see justice done. Their aim is to discredit Jesus. And so they, 
Even though there are two people who are culpable for this sin, they only bring one. Uh, The one, by the way, who would have very few rights. Uh, The one who was easy to take advantage of. Um, But then there's a second thing that's fishy about this. In the law, in Moses' law, in Deuteronomy 17, that, that when a sentence like stoning is to be passed, you need witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.7 says that you need two or three witnesses and they must bring the person forward and a judgment must be made and then the first people who will throw the stones are the witnesses. So there is a procedure for how this is supposed to go. You need witnesses, you need a judge, and you need a sentence and then those witnesses are the first ones to throw the stones and then the rest of the people are to join in. And so maybe the questions we ought to ask are, why are they coming to him? He's not a judge. He's not a temple official. He hasn't set himself in that place. Why are they bringing this case to him? Why why does he have the authority to hear it? In fact, the Jews don't even have that authority. That's been taken away from them by the Romans. Only the Roman occupiers, only they're allowed to execute people. And so you can tell that, Jesus, that, that the Jews, that the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to trap Jesus. Uh, they want to put either pit Jesus against Moses, get him to deny the law of Moses, or maybe if he says, yeah, you should stone her, now we've pit him against the Romans, and the Romans can deal with him. And so all of that shows that there's no interest in justice. There's no interest in the law. In fact, these men want to use the law. They want to use God. They want to use this woman in order to get rid of Jesus. And so what Jesus does is he takes the law that they purportedly cherish and he turns it around and he points it back at them. Right? Verse 7. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Uh, I got to go hunting recently. Um, I got to go with Aaron. I didn't tell him I, him I was going to use the story. But uh, I, didn't get to, I, didn't, I didn't see a deer, so I didn't get to shoot the gun at a deer. Uh, and so afterward, and this is, I know it sounds really odd, um, <clears throat> And so afterward, and I think Aaron did this with, uh, you know, kind of a twinkle in his eye. He was like, well, hey, let's do some target practice. Um, why don't you, you can, you can shoot my rifle. Uh, and he warned me ahead of time that the rifle had a wee bit of kick to it. And, um, and so I prop up and I shoot, and I think I actually hit what I was shooting at. Um, but the rifle did kick a good bit, and it bent my glasses. Um, which it did that better for me than to Aaron because when Aaron shot it, it actually right split your forehead open. So, um, Jesus, in a sense, is saying, be careful with that gun. Be careful where you point that thing. And be careful when you pull that trigger because you may find that you do more damage to yourself than the one you were aiming at. Uh, Jesus is telling them, do not play so cavalierly with my law. If you, if, you would go to, if you would rush to execute a woman simply so that you could discredit me, then you need to have that law turned on your own heart. 
and you need to examine yourself. And that is really the call of everyone who would aim to apply God's law. Uh, Jesus is not saying, and one of the ways that this is misused is we say, oh, him who's without sin, cast the first stone. Right? Nobody, nobody can make a judgment because nobody's perfect. Jesus is not giving a rule for all social justice. If he were parents, you couldn't discipline your children. Uh, police officers couldn't do their jobs. Judges couldn't issue judgments or prison, prison sentences. Right? There would be no such thing as justice if, if what Jesus is saying here is you cannot issue a judgment unless you are first perfect. But what he is saying here is very reminiscent of what he says in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, where he says, Judge not, lest you also be judged, for with the judgment you use, it will be measured back to you. Don't go for the log, excuse me, don't go for the speck in your brother's eye unless you first deal with the log in your own eye. Jesus is saying, uh, Be careful with that judgment, boys. Make sure that you're going, make sure that you're applying it rightly. Don't rush in to using the law the way that you're using. What he's doing is he's exposing their self-righteousness. He knows that's what's really at stake here. He's not, he's not ignoring the sin of this woman. And we're going to talk about that in a second. He's not ignoring the sin of this woman. They're ignoring their own sin. And Jesus cannot deal with that. And so he takes the law and he turns it back on them to expose their hypocrisy. And so let's talk about the grace of the Lord Jesus. And there's really, there's really two pictures of grace here. And the first one is this. There's the grace that exposes deep down sin. And that's what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees. Did you, do you get that? Like that, that what Jesus is doing in turning the law on them is he's actually showing them grace. That's what the law is for. And we talked about this when we went through the Ten Commandments. The grace of the, the, grace of the law is that it exposes our sin. It shows us how deep the sin goes. And so Jesus is taking the law, his law, and he's turning it on them. He's saying, you want the spotlight on this woman? Spotlight your own heart. See the self-righteousness that's present in your own heart. Repent of that. Deal with that. So that's grace. That's what Paul says in Romans, and that's reminiscent of what Paul says in Romans 2, verse 1. That all are exposed before the law, even those who love it so much. Even those who say that they keep it. I mean, think about this. It's God's grace that keeps these men from having blood on their hands. These men were ready to sacrifice this poor, sinful woman so that they could discredit Jesus. And Jesus' words turned them away from their inordinate desire. Right? Jesus' words keep them from being guilty of bloodlust. Because they would have been in violation of the law. So Jesus not, only, and Jesus not only keeps them from having blood on their hands, but if they have ears to hear, then they will see, or if they have eyes to see, they will see the hypocrisy in their own hearts. 
And it seems to indicate that maybe not that they came to believe, but at least that they begin to walk away, right? They realize when Jesus says what he says, beginning with the older, uh, because the older men knew just how wretched they were, uh, and as the younger men, these hotheads, see their elders walking away, they too follow, right? Jesus, in his grace, confronts their sin and, and really sends it, really sends that spotlight deep down. And that's what I need. I need the grace of the law to slam into my stone-cold heart and pierce it with revealing light. That's called conviction. And I need it. And you need it. And ideally, by the grace of God, conviction leads to repentance. Where we see our sin, we hate our sin, and we run from it. And we trust in the Lord Jesus. And so that's one picture of grace. There's the grace that exposes our deep down sin. Jesus wants those men and he wants us to be disgusted with our own self-righteousness. But then there's the grace that pardons deep down sin. And so grace that exposes sin wouldn't be much without grace that pardons. Grace, grace, God's grace Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. If anyone is without sin, so who in this crowd fits that description? Jesus. Who could throw that first stone? Jesus. And he doesn't. Jesus knows exactly where she's been. Jesus knows exactly what she's been doing. And he chooses not to condemn her. He chooses to have mercy. He knows her, and he even acknowledges her sin. He says, go and sin no more. He knows exactly what she's been doing, and instead of executing the law, he has mercy. So he exposes their sin, and because hers is already exposed and her shame is already out there for everyone to see, she knows her sin too. And now, so do hundreds of other people. And now that she's out in the open, Jesus pardons her sin. So we need to ask, is Jesus giving sin a pass? I mean, is this a is this an inaccurate, does this, does this passage not belong in the Bible because it shows Jesus being light on sin? Is Jesus giving sin a pass? No. I want you to think in terms of his mission. Think back to John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. His mission at this, at this point is not judgment. His mission at this point is mercy. Now when he comes back, that's a different story. When he comes back riding on the horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, that's a different story. But the mission now is mercy. in order that the world might be saved through him. Who is the world? 
Who has Jesus been sent to save? Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We read it earlier, Matthew 9, 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul would say. So the mission is mercy. Grace that exposes sin, grace that pardons sin. But notice this too in verse 11. The order of salvation is so incredibly important. Jesus does not say, if you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. That's not the right order. That's the order of, uh, that's the order of Islam. That's the order of Mormonism. If you go and sin no more, then you won't be condemned. That's not the order that Jesus gives. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Not because you're afraid of being stoned, but because you've met God in the flesh and he has had mercy on your soul. Go and sin no more. Is Jesus playing fast and loose with sin? No. And the, evidence, the only evidence that we need that Jesus doesn't take sin lightly is the cross. Because what Jesus will do with this woman's sin, he doesn't, he doesn't just forget it. He puts it on himself. He bears it to the cross. He receives the lashing. He receives the nails. He receives the separation from the Father that this woman would have received. So it's not that he takes sin lightly. No, he takes it on himself. That's the beauty of the pardoning, unmerited, stunning grace of God. Not only does he reveal sin and expose sin for what it is, but then for those who believe, he places it on himself. And he bears it to the cross. My sin, oh the, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's the message of John 8, 1 through 11. And it's true because we find it in every other part of the New Testament. So whether this story belongs in there or not, it rings true everywhere else. It is accurate and true of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. So whether you are the Pharisee, I plead with you to come out of your self-righteousness. Humble yourself before the grace and mercy of God. And if you are the adulterer, hear the, hear the call of the only Savior who can have mercy on, a, on sin. And if you're both, which is what most of us are, then I want you to see Jesus. And I want you to trust in Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You came to seek 
and to save the lost. That you come for the righteous. Excuse me, that you come for the unrighteous, not for the righteous. That you come to have mercy. And that as sons and daughters of mercy, we can follow you. That the law really takes its proper place. And we can grow in your grace. So, Lord, remind us of our great salvation. And now as we come to the table, remind us of your great salvation. That's what this is for. That you have, that you have given us bread and juice as a picture, as a reminder of our great salvation. So not only do we hear the gospel, but we eat the gospel and we drink the gospel. That we're reminded of your covenant promise. And we're reminded that one day, someday, we will eat and drink with you in heaven. Give us a foretaste of that now. We pray in Jesus' name.